Hello, and welcome to the City of Truth. Episode 13, The New Testament and Miracles. So far, we've covered the first of our two proofs for divine revelation, namely prophecies. Today, we will consider the second. First, we'll take a look at the New Testament, and then we'll look a bit beyond that as well. Keep in mind that, just like our discussion on God, we are developing all this in steps. We haven't argued for a particular interpretation or view of Christianity yet. We don't need to get into that to get to the beautiful idea. We're only considering whether the general Christian belief system is validated by divine proofs. 13.1 New Testament Reliability When it comes to the New Testament, we must consider the legitimacy of the source texts. On this matter, there isn't much in the way of argument. The ancient character of the four Gospels and the Epistles is not disputed. There were other supposed Gospels, yes, but none of them bore the character of universal acceptance, an early origin, or extensive quotation by early Christians. Only the four held today could at all be considered source material from the actual eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus, and there is no evidence at all to suggest that the acclaimed authors are false. We have four texts that are supposed to be first-century accounts of the life of Christ, and we find four texts that agree in nearly everything, bear all the characteristics of a first-century text, and had universal acceptance as such since the earliest days of the Christian church. The language used can also help us to date the texts something which wasn't really known at the time, and so would be pretty hard to fake. And linguistic analysis shows the text to be from the first century. To use another example, let's say we had a letter signed by George Washington. It was found in his old home. Dating of the language used and the parchment shows that it's from around 1780. We know he wrote letters. It's on subjects that he wrote letters about. And other historical documents attest to the existence of the letter since at least mm, 1800 or so you could feel pretty darn confident that you have a letter from George Washington. Contrarily, if no one mentioned the letter until 2014, and the letter uses the word twerking, you could be pretty confident that it's a fake. The Gospels are like the former example. There's no twerking in the Gospels. So we aren't dismissing the miraculous claims out of hand, as we discussed in prior episodes, and we are pretty confident about the authorship. What about the sincerity of the authors? This is probably the easiest question to answer. It is not sensible to doubt the sincerity of the apostles or the early church. What these men experienced changed them. The entire course of their lives changed once they met Jesus. They followed him around for over three years. Afterward, they spent decades, the remainder of their lives, under severe pressures spreading the teachings of Jesus Christ. In the end, eleven of the twelve were viciously tortured to death, sometimes over the course of days, rather than renounce their faith. They state separately and independently that they all saw with their own eyes the resurrection of Jesus Christ and numerous other miracles. They stated that over 400 people saw Jesus resurrected, and when they were writing this, most of those guys were still alive. Now, a person may think that the apostles were wrong. They can think that they were delusional. They can think that they were duped. But you really can't think that they weren't sincere. Peter fled as Christ was arrested and denied him, showing his human frailty. 
but by the end of his life he chose to remain in Rome, despite the certainty of execution. When asked what his last wish was, he requested that he be crucified upside down, because he was not worthy to die like his lord. Think on that. He is about to be viciously, horribly murdered in one of the most torturous ways imaginable, and his only thought was how unworthy he was to die like Jesus. That is not the action of a man plagued by doubt, or pulling a fast one on people. And perhaps, if it were just one guy, you could chalk it up to a single crazy person. But it wasn't one guy. There were twelve apostles, with Matthias taking the place of Judas. There were the seventy disciples under them. There were four hundred witnesses to the resurrection. There were three thousand who entered the church within fifty days after the crucifixion, people who knew and witnessed Jesus' life. In short, there were thousands of people saying the same thing, and dying via torture rather than renouncing it. This was, without a doubt, a sincere religious movement. Last question. What about non-biblical sources? This is one area where there's a great deal of muddled thinking. Now, we do have a quite a few sources that talk about Christ in early Christianity. Most of them are Christian sources. While Christianity did spread very rapidly, it wasn't a world-altering organization with two billion adherents overnight. It popped up on people's radar, but it wasn't a major political or cultural force for quite a long time. Really, the only people we'd expect to care a lot about it are Christians themselves. Nevertheless, we do have a few other sources mentioning the life of Jesus. Tacitus, a Roman pagan, and Josephus, a Jew, both discuss Jesus in first century documents. Those documents confirm that Jesus was indeed a historical figure, that he was crucified, that his followers believed him to be the Messiah, that he had a follower named James, that was the Bishop of Jerusalem, that his followers set up a church in Rome, and so on. Even the ancient rabbinic sources agree on the basic facts and historicity of Jesus. They just claim that he was in league with devils to perform his miracles. But as for other sources, there aren't many, and the request for non-Christian sources, or sources outside the Bible, seems pretty suspect. Think about this. When it comes to non-biblical sources, it's not as though the Bible was written as a single book. It's a collection of source documents compiled specifically because it contained the sources of Christian teaching, eyewitness accounts, and so on. To ask for other first-hand sources seems a bit disingenuous. It's as though someone compiled a collection of all the first-hand sources concerning, say, Richard the Lionheart, and then someone comes along and says, well, that's just one book. What other sources do you have? Well, the book is literally all the sources compiled under one collection. And as for non-Christian sources, having a problem with that would imply either that Christians are less reliable sources, or that Christianity is false. How so? Well, imagine for a moment that Jesus really did perform miracles. We are searching for eyewitness accounts of them. But if he did perform miracles, then it would seem to be the rational thing to do to believe his claims. That would make the witness a Christian. Asking for a non-Christian source that did in fact witness the miracles is asking for an irrational source. If the only believable source is one who witnesses the supernatural and yet doesn't believe in it, then the bar is set at an impossibly high standard for sources. It means operating off the presumption that the miracles were false, and therefore there ought to be witnesses who can expose it as a sham. I don't know about you, but if I saw someone raise a man from the dead, it might catch my attention. I might listen pretty closely to what the guy had to say. But that, if anything, is demonstrative of the authenticity of the event, not of it being a sham. Shouldn't seeing someone raised from the dead change a person's point of view? 
A Christian source is really all we would expect to find if the stories were true, and dismissing a person's eyewitness accounts because of their religion seems a bit biased unless you have a good reason. 13.2. Miraculous Claims So we have first-century eyewitness sources. We have at least four first-hand accounts. We also have multiple letters. We have the life changes and torturous deaths of the people who witnessed these things without recanting. They claimed a number of miracles took place. They claim that Jesus resurrected himself from the dead and hundreds witnessed it. The only real question is whether you believe them. Remember our previous parable about the prince, the sister, and her ten brothers? Those brothers swore an oath that it was the prince who took their sister. Under pain of torture and death, they refused to recant and offered their lives for the truth. The standard we applied there largely applies here as well. If you would believe those brothers, then it would stand to reason that you believe the apostles as well. But there's a common response today offered by the new atheist community. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The claim about the brothers, they may respond, is eminently reasonable. Someone kidnapped their sister, and they saw a purely ordinary and natural event take place. Their word is sufficient for such a claim. But the claim that a man rose himself from the dead something that hasn't happened at any other time in human history and appears impossible by the laws of physics, that's going to demand more than just what a few men said, no matter how serious their conviction. That seems like a pretty sensible response. That is, until you dig a bit deeper into it. One of the key points is the word extraordinary. What does a person mean by that? Does it mean something no one else has witnessed before? Does it mean something not repeatable at will? Does it mean something that can't happen based on our best available understanding? There are obviously plenty of things that happen regularly that no one has witnessed before, and we don't dismiss reports of those out of hand on those grounds. And all of history is composed of events we can't repeat at will. So I would say that generally what these people mean is an event that can't happen based on our best available understanding. Fair enough. But that relies on a predetermined judgment as to what is or is not possible. In other words, these events are only impossible to the naturalist. From a naturalist framework, as we discussed before with the reliability of historical documents, miracles simply can't happen. The laws of physics are absolutes. Now, there is no grounds for such a claim except that they don't see them violated. But isn't that the very thing in question here? A man can't argue that the laws of physics are absolute because he never sees them violated, and then dismiss a well-substantiated claim that they were violated because they're absolute. That's a tautology. If instead you were operating under our common-sense framework, where we have seen that there is a God, occasional violations of physical laws are entirely possible, and even to be expected in the case of a divine revelation, so long as the evidence supports the claim. We accept new things on well-founded testimony all the time, and once we have accepted the existence of God, it isn't an impossibility that we would see, on rare occasions, legitimate examples of a miracle. Let's consider two other examples. On March 13, 1997, the people of Phoenix, Arizona, saw a number of strange lights in the sky. There were at least two reported incidents. The lights were witnessed by thousands of people. A lot of people think that this was one or many alien spaceships. Given what we presently know about the laws of physics, this is a near impossibility. The only way to hold that position is if you believe that aliens can violate the laws of physics as we know them. 
However, the common sense model says that multiple independent eyewitnesses are a pretty definitively reliable source of information. This is true of the universally corroborated facts of the event. So what do these witnesses say they saw? They saw a triangular formation of lights moving across the sky. And you know what? I'm extremely certain that they did. The universal testimony of that event is correct. Now, I do not interpret it as an alien spaceship. I think that's a highly unlikely theory. But that's just one of many possibilities for explaining the known facts of the event. The corroborated and independent reports don't say the city was invaded by aliens, after all. It says that they saw lights in a triangle fly over them. There were, without a doubt, a triangular series of lights flying over Phoenix, Arizona on that day. I believe their testimony. Let's take another example, one we discussed briefly in a previous episode, the miracle at Fatima. In May of 1917, three young children living in Fatima, Portugal, claimed to have seen a beautiful lady from heaven. She promised to return on the 13th of each month until October, when she would perform a miracle. Gradually, the word spread. The children suffered a great deal for their story, but didn't recant their claim for their entire lives. In the aftermath of the event, two of the young children died of the Spanish flu while still young, but the third, Lucia, entered a convent and lived for a long time afterward. They claimed that this heavenly lady had given them a message for mankind. The message stressed the need for repentance, the reality of hell, the value of the rosary, and so on. It's an interesting story, and I'd recommend you look into it. Anyway, as word spread, greater and greater crowds showed up on the 13th of each month. No one else could see this heavenly lady, but many claimed they could see some sort of light descend from heaven to the spot where she appeared. By that October, some 70,000 people had shown up. A number of these people were atheists, journalists, communists, and the like, who had come to have a good laugh when nothing happened. But something did happen. Everyone there saw the sun change colors, dance in the sky, and plunge toward the earth. People were certain they were going to die. Afterward, it was reported in newspapers. Clippings and written eyewitness testimonies can be found at the event for anyone really interested in looking. This is a pretty crazy story, yet it's not well known outside of the Catholic community. To have so many people all confirm a miraculous event, and for even unbelievers to say that they saw it, and to have predicted it beforehand, that's no small thing. Now, skeptics claim mass hysteria or some other such thing, but of course they do. There's nothing else they can claim, because it's indisputable that tens of thousands of people saw something inexplicable. The only way to get around that is to say that sometimes, an entire stadium's worth of people just spontaneously see the same thing when it's not really there. It never seems to happen anywhere else, and they believe group eyewitness testimony in every other case. But for some reason, the rules are different here, in precisely the cases where they have a strongly vested interest. Funny how that works. If multiple independent corroborated testimonies are not sufficient evidence, then what is? What is the bar that's set for these people? Many people were at Fatima. Many people saw Jesus resurrected. Cameras didn't exist at the time of Jesus. But the social, cultural, historical, and religious record, both written and oral, all suggest that these events took place, and that it has since had a profound impact on the world. Those are all the tools available at the time to report such an event. And really, would cameras make a difference? In our age, can you legitimately say you believe any video or photograph you see, if it shows something incredible? 
I'd instantly conclude it's just special effects. I wouldn't find a supposed video any more convincing than the testimony of the people who were present. It seems to me that the only evidence that certain individuals would accept is to personally witness a miracle. And many of them wouldn't be convinced even in that case, at least without multiple such events. I've had some atheists tell me that outright. This means, in effect, that the only way they will believe a divine revelation is if God suspends the laws of physics according to their whims. They will only believe in a God who does what they say. They want to be able to suspend the laws of physics at their say-so. That strikes me as an unfair standard. And more than that, if the laws of physics were suspended constantly and consistently given a set of conditions, then that would no longer constitute a miracle. Why? Because then it would operate precisely like any other law of physics. You do X and the universe responds with Y every time. That's how physical laws work. It'd be a really weird law, sure, but it'd still be one. Their expectation, in short, appears to be one where they want to be individually catered to by the creator of the universe when they feel like it, despite both disbelief and a hostile disposition. And throughout the history of Christianity, the sheer quantity of corroborated miracles and prophecies is mind-boggling, easily in the thousands. Some events, like Fatima, have 70,000 witnesses, including atheists and journalists. And the prophecies, as we've seen, can be corroborated by yourself. 13.3. One Last Prophecy Let me give just one other example, one from outside the Bible. This prophecy was made in 1819, and I found it in a book from 1873. Scans of the book are available online. It concerns events that didn't take place until decades later, about the re-establishment of the nation of Poland. Keep in mind that, from 1795 until 1918, Poland did not exist as a separate country, and given the strength of its occupiers, it seemed unlikely that they would ever be restored as a country. I picked this one simply because I had it on hand, and it's in a source document that predates the prediction. Quote, the Reverend Father Korzeniecki, after praying to Andrew Bobola, who then appeared and said the following, once more turned his eyes towards the place indicated, and beheld that vast field covered with Russian, Turkish, French, English, Austrian, and Prussian armies, and others which he could not well discern, all of them fighting in a most furious manner one against the other. Not being able to comprehend the meaning of this vision, Blessed Bobola explained it to him in the following words. When the war which you see shall end, then the kingdom of Poland shall be re-established, and I shall be acknowledged as its principal patron. End quote. The vision he foresaw was a general war in Europe. It was the First World War, after which Poland was indeed re-established as a country in 1918. That war's primary combatants were just those listed, with the Russians, French, and English on one side, and the Turks, Prussians, and Austrians on the other, the Prussians here being the German Empire under the Prussian Emperor, Wilhelm. In 1938, Pope Pius XI canonized Andrew Bobola, and he became the patron saint of Poland. The book that this prophecy is found in is called The Christian Trumpet, if you want to look it up. You can find old copies around, or even scans of the book online. I've also found a corroborating text of this prophecy in the Ecclesiastical Review, Volume 53, published in 1915. You can find them on Google Books. There are plenty of other examples as well. Now, there is no doubt that there are also false prophecies out there, works of mere wish fulfillment, but those have largely been discredited by people who believe in prophecy more generally. 
Most such people are looking for the genuine article, after all. The existence of false prophecies doesn't invalidate the true ones, any more than the existence of fake Picassos invalidates the existence of true ones. 13.4. Conclusion So what are we left with here? What sort of conclusions should we draw from the information that we've covered over the last few episodes? We have four separate accounts from first-hand witnesses to the events that the key details of the life of Jesus happened, and they were subject to scrutiny by a minimum of thousands of others, all who witnessed some of these things and did not contradict their claims. Non-believers and even outright enemies of Christ and Christianity attest to the same facts of the life of Christ as being authentic, both among contemporary accounts like Josephus, Tacitus, and the Talmud, and among modern scholars. From this, we know that the events were not later fabricated in the narrative to fit the prophecies, as their historicity is not in dispute by nearly anyone. The events of Christ's life are interpreted in different ways, but the facts remain. The Jewish claims of the time, for instance, stated that the apostles must have stolen his body from the tomb and hidden it, and that Jesus was a devil-possessed magician. But both accounts agree that Christ's tomb was empty and that he performed seemingly impossible acts. So any unbiased, logical, careful approach to the subject understands these things. The narrative of Christ's life that we possess is believable and accurate, and the prophecies mentioned in the Old Testament predate his birth by centuries. Those prophecies predict an incredible number of details about him and his life, including a great many events totally outside of normal human control, such as place of birth and manner of death. Since then, not only has a worldwide religion come into existence that recognizes him as the Messiah and God, but there are verifiable examples of other prophecies and miracles that his followers have performed. What other conclusion is there, then, but that these prophecies were real and that he was the Messiah? Quote, Although I be the basest of mankind, from scalp to soul, one slough and crust of sin, unfit for earth, unfit for heaven, scarce meet for troops of devils mad with blasphemy. I will not cease to grasp the hope I hold, of saintum and to clamor, mourn and sob, battering the gates of heaven with storms of prayer. Have mercy, Lord, and take away my sin. Lord Tennyson Next week is the penultimate episode, where we will consider the questions of providence and destiny. <laughs>